again, Oak Mountain. We are, if you've got your Bibles, we are picking up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 4. And, and as we've seen every week, as we've moved through this gospel, Jesus just keeps circling this one question. Who do you say that I am? Everything hangs on how we respond to that one reality. And in the passage just before this, Jesus this, this, this king who's come proclaiming his kingdom, he's beginning to dig into the nature of that kingdom. Uh, last week, we were looking at who is inside and who is outside, and we discovered that it's not the people that we expect. And then this week, Jesus picks up that same theme yet again. This is a kingdom that is coming through Jesus Christ and his work, and yet that kingdom does not come in the way that we would think it would. And we see it here. Would you stand with me? We're going to read starting in verse 1. And Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And Jesus was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil. And produce grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and Jesus said to them, To you, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, do do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word away that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown 
on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we beg, would you take this word, this word that even here in the text we just heard read, it's described as a seed that is being thrown on the ground, and we pray, Lord, would it find in our hearts fertile soil. Lord, would you meet us in our weakness? Would you take take our hearts, Lord, which are oftentimes just so blind to how desperately we need you, and we pray, Lord, through your Spirit, Would you take these words, the same words that can shatter the cedars, the same words that can shatter mountains, and would you shatter our hard hearts, and would you show us Christ's beautiful one? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can take your seats. On Friday, I took my little girls uh, to Atlanta because we were dropping them off at their grandparents' house, and that meant we had some extended time in the car. And if you've ever traveled with children, I've got four, uh, you discover pretty quickly that they are going to respond to things on a car ride in very different ways. You put five or six people in a small space, over time, things, things can get a little crazy. And that played itself out in our journey to Atlanta. If I told a dad joke, which I'm prone to do, I've leaned into that part pretty hard, one of my girls will laugh uproariously as though it's the greatest thing she'd ever heard. One of my girls will laugh because she thinks she's supposed to, but not because she understands. The third will roll her eyes and like look out the window, and the fourth, the fourth will break into tears. (laughs) If I turn on a song, even a song that they usually love, two of them will start singing along, one of them will act like nothing has happened, and the fourth will inevitably cry. If I try to give them food, even the greatest of food, Chick-fil-A, the Christian ch- you know, chicken, whatever it is, and I pass it into the back seat, I'll have two girls just gobble it up like it's manna from heaven. One will kind of nibble at the edges, and then, I think they think it's a game, tuck it into corners of the car for me to find later, usually months later, and the fourth, the fourth will break into tears. It's a pattern. The same thing offered in the same moment, evokes these wildly different responses. It's a phenomenon that we experience in all of life, isn't it? I mean, think about the last time you went to a movie with a group of friends. Did all of you walk out thinking the same thing? I mean, Mal and I, if we turn on a Lifetime movie around Christmas, which she loves, her response and mine are not the same. I'm looking for any reason to get out. She is as content as content could be. The same thing, the same moment, a wildly different response. But nowhere is that phenomenon more confusing than when it comes to the gospel. Because this, at least according to the Bible, this is the greatest news that the world has ever heard. God has broken into space and time and history. He has come in human flesh for one purpose and one purpose only, to save sinners like us, to take this world that he made, this world that sin has corrupted, and by grace to make it whole. And he offers us all of this as a gift simply to be received by faith. And yet, that word, 
that good news, it evokes wildly different responses, doesn't it? I mean, it's happening even in this room as I speak. Some of you are hearing this, and you have heard this word preached a million times before, and still you're sitting there going, I don't understand why people get excited about this. You're here today because someone asked you and you wanted to be kind. Others of you, it's a word that you heard, and maybe for a part of your life, it was good news that sounded really, really good. And then life life got hard, and that good news, it began to seem like it was decidedly less good. And then others of you, this word is a word you've believed and a word that you have trusted. It's a word that you come to day after day after day, and yet it hasn't borne fruit in your life in the way that you expected or at the rate that you desired. And if I'm honest, I have to raise my hand and say, that's me. You know, I've been a Christian now for almost 20 years. And I thought at this point I would be as gentle as Mr. Rogers and as evangelistic as Francis Schaeffer, and guess what? I'm not. So what's happening? If this good news is so good, if this gospel is so transformative, why does it so often look so weak? Mark 4 is Jesus putting his finger on precisely that issue. All through this gospel, Jesus has been proclaiming that good news. He has been announcing the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And yet, as we have already seen, only three chapters in, the responses, they are varied, aren't they? You have one group, the scribes and the Pharisees, they already want to kill Jesus. You have the crowds that are flocking to him, but based on Jesus' response, for all the wrong reasons. You've got Jesus' mother and his brothers who for reasons that surprise us, are outside of the kingdom and outside of the family. They don't seem to understand what's going on. And so you have Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, with just this small band of disciples. And even that small band, man, they're just a little bit weird, aren't they? They're like the outcasts of Judea gathered together into this hodgepodge group where their presence together doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And not only does their presence together not make sense, But you notice that already within their midst, there's one we're told is going to betray him, and the other guys, they're just confused about everything. Behold the inbreaking kingdom of God. What in the world is happening? Jesus, in this text, he says, I'll tell you what's happening. My kingdom does not come in the way that you expect. It doesn't come in shining displays of glory. It comes in a way that to human eyes seems hidden. It doesn't come in what looks like strength. It comes in what looks like weakness. And yet that very weakness, it is the power of God to save. To take people just like us and turn our lives upside down, but not just our lives, but this world that God made. And Jesus As he so often does, he presses into this reality through a parable. You see it in the first nine verses. Jesus is sitting in a boat on the side of the sea, and he's teaching the people, and we are told in verse 2, he's teaching them many things in what? Parables, plural. He's giving them these stories 
these analogies drawn from everyday life that are intended to shed light on his kingdom. And then in verse 3, we're told that he gives them one parable more, a parable that is apparently more important than all the others because Jesus, for the first time, he gives a command. He says, verse 3, listen, pay attention to what I'm about to say, the thing I'm about to communicate. There is more to it than meets the eye. And then Jesus begins this story, this parable, that is on the one hand both familiar and unfamiliar. This disorientingly strange story because there's something in it that they see every day. There's a sower sowing seeds. There's the familiar. They're an agricultural society. They've all seen this happen. But here's the strange part. He's doing it all wrong. In the Jewish Mishnah, which is the collection of the Jewish oral tradition where the scribes would lay out the way you were supposed to live your life in the light of the scriptures, in the Mishnah there are actually instructions about how you're supposed to sow seed. You're supposed to do it according to the Mishnah in a way that is methodical, careful, and orderly. You're supposed to do it in a way where none of the seeds are wasted, but each one is with care placed in precisely the right spot so that they would not go, they wouldn't just fall away, but they would actually bear fruit. But what is Jesus' sower doing? He's defying all that, isn't he? He's not methodical, he's not careful, he's not orderly. He's not making sure that the seeds aren't wasted. He is throwing them recklessly with seeming abandon anywhere that he can. And if you were a farmer and you were wanting to have a good return on your harvest, what this guy is doing, it looks like foolishness. But then Jesus mentions one thing more. He says some of the seeds fall on the path. Some fall on the rocky ground. Some fall on the thorny ground. And all of those, they end up getting choked out or dying or snatched away. But some of the seed, some fall on good soil. And that seed, it produces a harvest of miraculous proportions. It's Jack taking his magic bean and throwing it on the ground and then going to bed and waking up to seeing a beanstalk that reaches to the heavens. It is a farmer winning the the proverbial harvest lottery. They've got the jackpot of a crop, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And then Jesus... At the end of this story, where what looks like foolishness proves to be wisdom and what looks like weakness proves to be strength, Jesus turns to the crowd and says the same thing he did at the beginning. Listen, verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so you can imagine the crowd in this moment. Jesus has just laid out this parable He's just told you you need to pay attention, and so they are probably leaning forward with bated breath going, all right, Jesus, tell us what this is about. Tell us what it means. It's obviously important, and then Jesus does that very Jesus thing. He just leaves. No explanation, no introduction, no clarification. He just exits the building, and you know that he does this because what happens next? The disciples come to him in verse 10 when he's alone with questions. Verse 10. And when he was alone, away from the crowd, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Again, plural, meaning they don't understand any of them. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the questions are. 
And he probably doesn't tell us what the questions are because he knows we have probably have the same questions. It's just, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why aren't you being clear? There's people who want to kill you. There's people flocking to you for the wrong reasons. We're here and we're confused. Just speak plainly. Why aren't you saying what you mean as clearly as you can? Why don't you help us out? And Jesus, in the weird way Jesus does, he responds with what sounds like another riddle. He says, verse 11, to you, to you who is inside the kingdom, to my disciples, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. God has given you this kingdom as a gift. Not as something that you earned, but instead simply because he delighted to do it. But for those outside, for those, as Mark 3 told us, like Jesus' family and like the scribes, everything, including the person of Jesus himself, is in parables. They're mysteries. And why is Jesus telling these parables Verse 12, quoting Isaiah 6, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. If you're one of the people who came to Jesus with questions, I'm sure that's not the answer you were expecting. So what is Jesus saying here? You know, the best analogy that I can come up with, my, my parable to explain Jesus' parable, is this story found at the end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. If you've not read that book, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know much except for this. At the end of the book, there is this cataclysmic battle between good and evil. The, the magical land of Narnia is on the brink of collapse. Good seems to be losing and evil seems to be winning. And the enemy forces, they have defeated those who represent the side of good and they've captured the heroes and they are throwing them through this door into a stable that they think is full only of darkness, dirt, and death. They think there is something in that stable that is going to kill anyone who goes inside and the heroes, they think it too. And so when they fall through the door, their eyes are closed until they hear the door slam shut behind them. But when they open their eyes, they discover that what they expected, it is something else entirely. What they see, it's not dirt, it's not darkness, it's not death. It is a world more beautiful than anything that they have ever seen. A world that is teeming with life and light and beauty. A world so marvelous they are afraid to touch even the grass. And yet as they look around instinctually, they realize everything there is for them. They look at themselves and they realize they were covered before in the dirt and the grime of battle, but now their bodies are cleaner than they've ever been before. And they're not wearing the blood-stained armor. They are wearing the glorious robes of kings and queens. And one of the heroes turns and sees standing in the middle of this beautiful, glorious world, he sees the door. And he walks up to the door and he puts his eye to the keyhole and he peers through. And there on the other side, he sees the world they left. Dirty and grim with their enemies milling about, wondering what awful things have happened to the people in the stable. 
And he turns to his friends with a smile on his face and he says this. It seems then that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory. Its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy. In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Jesus says that's how parables work. For those who are on the inside, who see in the presence of Jesus the gracious will of God to save, the presence of one who is in the world and yet is greater than the world, and they're not to condemn it but to redeem it. Jesus says for those, these parables are a gift. They're grace. They're an invitation to come further up and further in to the beauty of the gospel, to see yourselves not as those cloaked in sin and shame, but now as those cloaked with the perfect righteousness of another, the crucified and resurrected Christ. To see yourselves not as heirs of a kingdom that is here for a moment and then gone tomorrow like so many of the kingdoms of this world, like Israel and Rome and even the United States, but instead of an eternal kingdom with an eternal king that has no end. It is to see yourselves living in a more beautiful and glorious reality. But Jesus says for those who are outside, for those who look at Jesus and see only his flesh, only his lowliness, only his cross, who see in him either an affront to their pride or a threat to what they love, then Jesus says for them, the very parables that are grace to some, they will be judgment to you. You will see the stable door and you will see the stable, but you will not see the glory contained therein. The darkness will grow darker still, and it all centers on one question, the one that has been burning through the whole book of Mark. Who do we say Jesus is? And Jesus, no doubt seeing the confusion on the faces of his disciples, Jesus says in the very next verse, do you still not understand if you don't get this, you're not going to understand the rest of the parables. And then Jesus begins to give an explanation. He says, there's one question at the heart of all these. It's not how smart you are or how religious you are or how strong or how rich. It's simply this. How are you and I hearing the word? Jesus says in verse 14, that's the seed that the sower is sowing. And what is the one thing that distinguishes each of these four soils from each other? It's not the content of the message. It's the way they hear that word. Jesus says, this is my ministry. I'm the sower recklessly throwing the seed of the gospel at the ground of your hearts. I don't care if you are a pastor or a prostitute, the high priest or a demon-possessed person. I don't care if you are religious or irreligious. You are a sinner in need of a savior, and that is what I am. Come to me. And the question of the parable, the question it demands we answer is how are we responding to that offer? Jesus says there's four soils 
And each one represents a different kind of heart that is revealed by its response to the word. The first, it's the seed that falls on the path and gets snatched away, or what we could call the hard heart. In verse 15, Jesus says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, if you've been paying attention in the Gospel of Mark, which group is that? It's the scribes, isn't it? They, they hear the word of Jesus and their response, their response is basically just to look at it and to reject it in every way possible. They're, they're like a tennis ball. The word is like a tennis ball bouncing off of a brick wall when it comes to their hearts. There's no joy, there's no receptivity, there's just apathy, incredulity, or enmity. They don't want to hear that word, and Satan doesn't want to hear them to hear it either, and so what does Satan do? He snatches it away with their permission. They're not innocent victims, they are cooperating parties. The word comes and the word does nothing. But Jesus says there's also another soil. The seed that falls onto the rocky ground, or what you could call the shallow heart. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. This is the one who hears the gospel, gobbles it up, that they are ecstatic, excited. They got their hands lifted up in praise. They're on the front row in church. But then there's this problem. Verse 17, but they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The roots that get formed, they are roots that only go skin deep. And as soon as the cost outweighs the perceived benefit, these are people who flee. Now here's what's striking. We mentioned earlier the Pharisees are clearly the first soil. Who's the only group of people in the Gospel of Mark who look like the second soil? It's the disciples. They've come to Jesus with joy. They're generally confused, but they're happy to be there. And then what happens when the mob comes to arrest Jesus? And Jesus doesn't say no to the cross. He says yes. They run. Every one of them to a man. One of them gets so scared that Mark tells us he runs away without his clothes. He's just naked running through the woods. Peter, the man who said, Jesus, I would die before I would betray you. Peter, Peter denies Jesus three different times. As soon as the cost outweighs the perceived benefit, what do the disciples do? They flee. There is joy for a moment, but then in the end, it proves to be a vapor. And while it's not the brick wall of verse 15, it has the same result, doesn't it? Then Jesus says there's a third soil, or what you might call the shallow heart. Verse 16, or excuse me, verse 7, 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You know, the first, the first two soils are pretty straightforward. The first one, the word comes and the word bounces right off. The second one, they receive the word, but then they abandon it when the going gets tough. But this one, did you notice something strange about it? 
it never says that they flee because of persecution. It never says that they deny Jesus with their lips. What is the one thing that distinguishes this group? They don't prove to be fruitful. Which means, these are people who by the confession of their lips are within the church. Now, if you want to talk about the soil that most unsettles me, it's this one. You know, if you've had your finger on the cultural pulse at all, you know these past few years there's been this rash of stories in, in the media, in magazine articles, newspaper stories, documentaries, all talking about abuse within the church. And sadly, many of them have been true stories. And I have read those, watched those, and what has been most alarming to me is in so many of these cases, the people doing the abuse, they aren't people who are denying Jesus. They're claiming him. But they have taken this Jesus and they have married him to some other thing and then they have used Jesus to justify the thing. They are like someone who has tried to marry two different brides. Jesus and power. Jesus and money. Jesus and sex. Jesus and politics. Jesus and some other thing. And in trying to marry two brides, they inevitably prove to be faithful only to one. And here is what really frightens me. It can look like religion. Herman Bavinck, he makes a comment in one of his books on ethics where he says that, there are some people who they nod their head at the gospel, but they keep the door of their hearts closed. They resist the spirit, they silence their conscience, and they plunge on into cruder and cruder sins. This is the person who says, the gospel is all grace, and so I can go and do whatever it is that I want to do. It's antinomianism. But then he describes another group. He says, but some, some adopt a middle course, they turn from coarse sins, those more socially unacceptable ones, become staid and religious in their walk, attend church, become zealous advocates for the church, for missions, etc. They're the person who's involved in everything the church has to offer. Such people often become hypocrites. They bend their heads like a bulrush, torture their souls the whole day with fasting, and spread sackcloth and ashes over themselves. Among them, we often find the critics, the nitpickers, those who never come to the point of being born again and missed all spiritual life, but still use the standard preparatory experience, some long-ago memory of spiritual life, a walk down an aisle, a baptism, a confirmation class, or maybe it's just their involvement in the church, and boast about it. They are like a foolish child who, as Hosea says, is too busy to be born. It's the person in whom there's an external conformity but no internal reality. They have the form of godliness, none of the power. This is the one that frightens me, as I've said the most, and here's why. Who here can say that you don't have cares in your heart that compete with Jesus? I can't say that. And what Jesus is saying here is that if we do not pull up those cares by the root, 
then not only will they hinder gospel growth, they will choke it out. They will take what once looked vibrant and they will turn it into an unfruitful husk. Then Jesus says there's one soil more. The good soil. Or what you might call the receptive heart. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty-fold, sixty-fold, and a hundred-fold. And here is the question, what makes the good soil good? It's not people who are inherently better than others. It's not good people. Good people are not the good soil because what has the whole gospel been telling us? Who are we? We are sinners in need of a Savior, which means there's no good people. What's the good soil? It's bad people who by God's grace have come to see a good Christ. It's people who have come to see in the presence of Jesus the one who shows them their sin, that they are more deeply sinful than they could ever imagine, more needy than they could ever possibly express, and yet they have discovered in him one whose love knows no bounds, who meets them in their place of need and saves them and redeems them in full, not through their work, but through his. It's people who have come to say, as Jesus does in John 6, when Jesus says, do you want to go away as well to his disciples? Say with Peter, Lord, where else can we go because you and you only have the words of eternal life? In the first three soils, three times Jesus says they hear the word. And here's what's significant. In the Greek, it's in what we call the aorist tense, which means it is something that has taken place in the past. It is an event that took place and then it ended. That's not what it is in verse 20. Verse 20 is not in the aorist tense. Verse 20 is in the present tense, which means it is a hearing that takes place now and ongoingly. It is the one who moment by moment, day after day, comes to the feet of Jesus because you have come to recognize that you can't make yourself fruitful in your own power, but he can in his. It is those who come to the sower and his seed and allow that seed to transform them from the inside out. Jesus says, that's the good soil. And notice the fruit. 30, 60, and 100-fold. It's the farmer lottery. And here's what's significant. The kind of soil that you appear to be now may not be the soil you prove to be in the end. Because who did we say the rocky soil was? It's the disciples. Is that what they proved to be in the end? No. They end the Gospel of Mark still generally confused. And yet, why are we sitting in this room today? Because Christ made them the good soil. Jesus, Jesus would look at us and say, what kind of soil are you? You know, you may be sitting here today and you think, I'm the hard soil. I'm the hard heart. 
I don't want anything to do with this. I want to get out of this room as soon as I can. You, you may be the rocky soil. You're going, the, the cost, it still sounds too high. You might be maybe more like me where you're going, I look at my heart and all I see it is thorns and it is thistles, those cares that are going to choke out gospel life. And Jesus, to every one of us in answer to that question, he says, there is one cure for our disease. Listen to me. Because why is Jesus telling us this parable? Why is it recorded here in Scripture for us? Why is he still recklessly throwing the seed of the gospel at the ground of our hearts? It's not because he's indifferent to you. It's not because he wants to close the door and leave you sitting outside of the stable. It is because Jesus, in his heart and in his life, it is that you would see and perceive, hear and understand, turn and be forgiven. It's that we would come to him and pass through the stable door and be reborn. Because who is Jesus? He's not just the sower, is he? He's the seed. And in John 12, what does the seed do? Jesus is the seed that out of love for us falls to the ground and dies. And in dying does what? Bears much fruit. He's the seed of resurrection life that can take our hard hearts and make them fruitful ones. He is that seed that when he implants himself in our heart, plants himself in us in such a way that the cares of this world can't choke it out, but are instead choked out by him. And when we join with Christ, and recklessly casting those seeds, Jesus says that labor, it's never in vain. Richard Sibbs, he has this great analogy in one of his books where he talks about a farmer. He said, if you came to a farmer and you said, I can 100% guarantee you, I will promise you that if you will just faithfully attend to the tools of your trade, you will produce a harvest. Locusts are not going to eat it. Plagues will not destroy it. Natural disasters won't wipe it out. You will have a harvest. Sibs says, what farmer in their right mind hears that and goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go burn my plow. What, what farmer hears that word and says, you know what? I'm not going to water my crops. I'm not going to plant any seeds. I'm not going to plow any furrows. The only farmer who would say that would be an insane one. What would you do? You would put your shoulder to the plow and you would pursue that work even more zealously than before. Why? Because you know it is not in vain. Jesus in the gospel has given you exactly that guarantee. He says, if you will just come and hear my word and accept it, not only can you bear fruit, but because of me, you will bear fruit. Christ's kingdom, it's a hidden kingdom. It comes not in what looks like strength, but in what looks like weakness. But here's the beauty. It may have what looks to our eyes, looks like inauspicious beginnings. Jesus says, but it has a glorious end. There is a harvest coming, born of grace, that our hearts cannot even begin to conceive of and our brains cannot even begin to imagine. And how do we know it's coming? Because of the one who is both the sower and the seed, Christ Jesus the Lord. 
As the Father says in Mark 9, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Father, we're grateful this morning that as we come to You, Lord, we come to a God who so loves us that He would send His Son, that He would do this thing that on the surface looks like it would be unfruitful. You sent Your Son to die. And yet, Lord, that very foolishness, it is the power of God for salvation for us. Because you are also the God of resurrection life. And so we pray this morning, as we go about our days, would you take the word of your gospel? And would you take the soil of our hearts, and if it is hard, shattered, and if it is rocky, till it up. If it is thorny, yank it out. And Lord, would you make us the good soil that hears this word, accepts it, and bears much fruit. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me to receive the Lord's benediction? May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins.